I may have shared probably 10 years ago or more, a practice I used to uh, enjoy, kind of, uh, when I was a pastor in Michigan. I would often go to a, a cemetery and I would go and pray. And um, first, because it was quiet, uh, but also to remind me of the brevity of the life of those to whom I preached and my own life. Uh, it, it, would, it would cause me to think that we're a temporal people in the flesh. It wasn't really my idea. It was more of an idea that I gained from the Puritans. The, the Puritans, you know, the Puritans are often criticized for not enjoying art. And one of the reasons that they're accused of this is that they took the stained glass windows out of the churches that they would have. And, and uh, it wasn't that they didn't enjoy art at all. They, many of them put the stained glass in their homes. They enjoyed it so much. Uh, but they wanted clear windows in the church, in the meeting houses. Clear windows so that when the preacher preached, he would be looking at the cemetery that was normally adjacent to the, to the church. And that they, would, that they would be preaching with that in mind, that everybody they spoke with were going to be heading there at one point, including himself. That they might preach with greater unction and, and greater excitement for the benefit of the people to whom they preached. In fact, it reminded me of, uh, well, I'm sure it influenced, I should say, it influenced Richard Baxter. Daniel reminded me of this when we were talking about the sermon. And he said these words, he said, I preach as a dying man to dying men. And you know, the early Christians understood that all of life was heading to a grave. I mean, the early Christians would say that the way we sleep is God's gentle reminder of what we all will face, what will happen to all of us, that you lie down in your bed just as you will be laid down in a coffin. And we kind of find ourselves here in the middle of a burial, in the middle of a graveyard. And, and it's difficult, you know, most preachers don't preach just the burial of Jesus. Generally, it's the burial and the resurrection. Because it seems almost anticlimactic. You know, we know that he rose from the dead. So why just preach a burial? But I think that the scriptures give importance to the burial. Uh, not just in the scripture uh, that Beth Ann read in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said it was of first importance that he died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. It says he was buried. The early church saw this, right? In the early documents of the church, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, they all mentioned that he was buried. We say the Apostles' Creed after communion. You know, communion, the communion table is really a visual reminder for us about our unity in the faith. And the creed is really a verbal reminder of our faith. So they saw it as important. But why is it important? I mean, what lessons can we learn from the grave? Well, I just want to give you a few, and, and I, hope, I hope a number of them will resonate with you. So we're looking at how does the burial of Jesus instruct us, lead us, encourage us. The first thing I would say to you, the first benefit, the first instruction of the burial, is it shows the kind of company that Jesus Christ keeps that he values the lowly 
and the seeming insignificant. Look with me at 55 and 56. Notice who are present with Jesus. It's these women. It says they were at a distance. Now, now, remember now, the crucifixion scene was many, many hours long. So they weren't always at a distance. I don't think they were scared or they were threatened per se, because John's gospel has that they were very close to the cross at one point, close enough to hear Jesus speak to John the apostle to say, take care of my mother. So, so I, I think what he's not speaking about proximity as much as he is presence. They were present there, but they had always been present. Do you realize back in Luke chapter 8, Luke records that the women out of their own means contributed to Jesus's ministry. Women followed him from Galilee. They followed him, they walked behind him, they ministered to him, they supported him, and here they are now. I mean, can you imagine they're present to see the cruel, the torturous crucifixion, to look upon that and not leave? I mean, the question we ought to ask is, who isn't there? Well, his apostles, his closest associates, they weren't there. It was just the women that were hanging tough in an incredibly difficult situation. He names the women for us so that we know. And incidentally, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew is obviously implicating himself because he wasn't there either. He's just reporting who was there. Mary Magdalene, you know, the woman in Luke 8 that had been delivered from seven demons. She was delivered, cleansed, healed, and followed him for the balance. But not just Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. We don't really know, this might be an oblique reference to uh, Jesus' mother Mary, because back in chapter 13, and Mary, his mother, is referenced as having two sons, James and Joseph, but we don't know for sure. But the interesting one for me was the mother of Zebedee's sons. You remember Zebedee's sons, this mother. She's kind of irritating, actually, a little bit in the beginning. If you remember in chapter 20, she was the one that went up to Jesus and pleaded with him, hey, listen, I got two sons, I'd like one on the right, and I'd like one on the left. I mean, this intrusionistic mother coming in, jockeying for positions for her boys. But you know what? I'm impressed. The boys aren't here. She is. She, I mean, she is impressive to be there. I think, I think Jesus is saying this is the kind of company Jesus keeps. These women, now you know, in this culture... As abhorrent as it sounds, women were considered of lower value. They had less credibility, right? So it would take two women to give testimony to equal one man. They had less authority. They had less position in society. They were considered less in terms of intelligence and abilities. And yet Jesus chooses women to be the witnesses that will provide continuity between the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. The women are the main witness bearers of these monumental events at the end of his life. No men were. They were all women. I mean, they provide credibility to what was said by the centurion that we looked at last week. They provided credibility to what Jesus... How would the apostles ever have known what he said if it wasn't for the women? I mean, these women, which would be considered weak and lowly, Jesus Christ grants favor and honor upon them. 
So, so I hope you're encouraged by this. I, I mean, I, I hope for those of you who will admit right now in their hearts that, well, I'm not really that effective for the kingdom. I'm, you know, we kind of discredit ourselves. We disqualify ourselves. Well, I can't speak like this person, and I don't have the position that this person has, and I don't have the intelligence that this person has. You know, all the intelligence and the articulate, they aren't there. It's just the women. I hope if you are sitting here thinking, I, I do believe, but I don't know what my gifts are, and I don't know that I can do anything, and I'm scared if they ask me, would you take comfort in this passage? I mean, would you rest in this? I think of Paul's words to the Corinthians in chapter 1. He says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is a counterintuitive God. He doesn't, he doesn't judge by worldly standards. You rate yourselves among your peers, and you may be lower. Or high. God doesn't do it that way. You know, when Paul was at his point of weakness, for various reasons at the end of 2 Corinthians, you know, Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It almost seems as if weakness is a requirement to be used of God. Now that doesn't square with the way we look at our own selves and our giftings. Would you avail yourselves of Christ if you are that way? You feel uncomfortable, you feel weak, you feel like you can't do anything. Would you just open yourselves up to God? If you're a Christian and say, use me as you will use me. Your grace is sufficient. I trust more in your grace enabling me than in what I naturally have to be useful. So I hope you're encouraged in that. That's a lesson. These women provide a very strong lesson for us. Okay, the second lesson I would ask you to consider. <clears throat> Jesus' burial shows God's intention to vindicate his son. God's intention to vindicate his son. Let me explain this. This is in 57 now to 61. So you see... Um, Matthew record that evening approach. Now, this is a marker for us, right? The Jewish day began in the evening and went to the next evening. And so it's on a Friday. It's the day before the Sabbath where no work was to be done. So as evening is approaching, um, you see Joseph move into action. Why? Because Jewish law in Deuteronomy 21 said a man should not hang on a tree overnight. It's a defilement of the body. And so if they were going to take Jesus off of the cross, it had to be done before the Sabbath because there was no work to be done on the Sabbath. Now, the Jews, if a criminal was crucified, they would not be buried in a family tomb. That would dishonor the family. It would dishonor the tomb because he was a convicted criminal. They would put him in a common pit or a common grave. This is the beauty of what we're going to read here. But God raises up Joseph of Arimathea, raises up him to seek 
this body. Now let me just give you a word on Joseph. Not much is known. You haven't heard about him before in the gospel, and you're not going to hear about him after. Well, all we know is this. He's from Arimathea, which is a non-existent town now, but it was in Judea, probably very close to Jerusalem. In fact, the tomb he has may have been on his property. Um, he was a rich man. And remember now, when we say rich man in Scripture, he was a rich man, right? We didn't have a middle class at this time. So he was very wealthy. And there were a lot of very poor people, but he was very wealthy. And he was um, a disciple, we read. Now, Mark and Luke add some more details. They say he was a good, he was a courageous man. They said that he was a man longing for the kingdom of God. So he was one looking for a Savior to come. They also say this detail. They say that he was a respected, even a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the group that condemned Jesus to die. Now Luke is quick to add that he did not consent in the decision they made. But John helps explain it a little bit in his gospel. He said that he was a secret disciple. He was a disciple of Jesus. In fact, some thinks. Some think that Jesus actually discipled him because the words in the verbal form. He was discipled by Jesus. But he was a secret one. He was scared. He was in fear of the Jews. He was, he was in fear of going public with his, with his belief in Jesus Christ. And yet, by God's grace, he finds courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body. To go to Pilate, request this body. He must have been a prominent man. Pilate's not having an open office door for anybody that wants to come see him. So he's risking so much right now and requests the body. Now in Mark's gospel, we find that Pilate actually retrieved the centurion to confirm that Jesus had in fact died. And he did, and he gave him the body. And then he took the body. Joseph took the body. Many think he actually took him down off the cross and wrapped him with Nicodemus. So John's gospel informs us that Nicodemus actually helped him. Nicodemus is another member of the Sanhedrin. He was the one that came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and he helped him, and they buried the body. Then they rolled a stone. Of course, the stone was to, uh, to keep animals from the tomb, as well as thieves. They rolled the stone. Oftentimes, these stones were circular, and they would be in a track that would be easy to roll down, not easy to roll up, and it would secure the body. It says then that they went away. But there were two women, the two Marys, standing guard, if you will, watching where he was buried. That's important. Uh, and they went away. So why all the detail here? Well, a couple things. As I said, the, 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 the Jews wouldn't put Jesus in a tomb. They would put him in a common grave. If, if the Romans had it their way, they would have left him on the, the cross. That's what the Romans did. They'd leave you on the cross until you disintegrated. Or you fell apart, they'd throw you in a pit. And, and they'd either throw you in a trash heap where either animals would take care of you or fires, or you'd just be piled trash on. That's how they did it. But think of how that would have obscured the empty tomb. You know, the early apostolic proclamation was the tomb was empty. So when John goes into the tomb, he sees Jesus wasn't there, and he believed. In other words, the empty tomb was used as a, as a point of preaching. 
So it would have been obscured. But there's more going on than just putting in a tomb. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9. Let me read it to you. It's amazing how God is working to vindicate his son. In Isaiah 53, we read this. And they made his grave with the wicked. Now, if they had done that, he would have been buried as a criminal. He would have been buried as a wicked man. God will not have that. God will vindicate the son. And so it says in the rest of the verse, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with a rich man in his death. And that's why Matthew is the only gospel writer to say that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, to draw our minds back to Isaiah, to show us that God is going to give his son a proper burial. In fact, John's gospel informs us that Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of spices. First in 1 Kings 15, that's the amount of spices for the burial of a king. Matthew has been at pains to declare Christ as king. He was born son of David. When he was born, he was worshipped as a king. What did they bring? Similar spices that they just brought, that Nicodemus brings for his burial. He teaches as a king in the Sermon on the Mount. He heals as a king in chapters 8, 9, and 10. He calls people to follow him as a king in 10, 11, and 12. He confronts opposition as a king all the way through 23. And here now he's buried as a king. I want this to impress you. I, I mean, I, I, like with wet cement, I want you to be impressed by a number of things. First, the, the detail of God fulfilling his own word. That God's word is fulfilled perfectly. You can trust in the word of God. I, I mean, that this is why we preach the scriptures verse by verse. We believe that God has given it to us for our wisdom, our joy, our salvation. You can trust it. This is why we memorize it. This is why we consider it. This is why we encourage it. I'd rather hear from you, or I hope you would hear from me, a word of God's truth in just whatever experience you've You've gone through in life. That's helpful, no doubt. But this is life-giving. But I hope you're also impressed with the power of God. God has his people everywhere. The Sanhedrin, two of the Sanhedrin are disciples. Two of them. God draws them. He can bring witnesses forth from any group, anywhere, any level of government, any strata of society, any educational background. I, mean, I wonder those of you who God might not have something for, even in this way. I, I mean, these disciples, they were secret, not anymore. Now they're public. But I wonder, you know, Joseph just comes on the scene. He's central to the story, and then he goes off the scene. We don't hear about him anymore. We believe he continued as a disciple, but... But I wonder what God has for you. God draws people from everywhere. There's no arena. There's no realm of academia. There's no, you know, among the, there's no area that God doesn't draw people that he wants to himself. I'm very encouraged by that. And then thirdly, I pray that you're impressed by the transformation of Joseph. Joseph was truly scared. He was in fear. He would have been alienated from all of his fellow friends and religious co-laborers on the Sanhedrin. 
I mean, think about it. To be alienated by your whole religious community, they would have turned on him. They condemned him to die, and now Joseph is treating him like he would, like a son. He buries him in his tomb. He knew that would mean the tomb that he had cut out of a rock. You know those big mausoleums that you see in the cemetery? You know, they're, they're super expensive. Can you imagine the amount of money he put in? And he just tossed it to the side to bury Jesus in his own tomb. It reminded me of that act of devotion, the woman, back a few chapters ago, when she broke the the jar of expensive nard, and she anointed Jesus for his burial. And and about the money that she, the the disciples said she wasted, and yet she saw it as an act of devotion. And here now we see another act of devotion as Joseph prepares this tomb for Jesus. I mean, what transformation must have taken place? He also ran the risk of Rome. To ask for the body of an insurrectionist would be to imply you agreed with his insurrection. And so you might run afoul of Rome. He was a really rich man. He could have had that all taken from him. He is literally going public with his belief in Jesus Christ. It's impressive to me. That's the grace of God. I wonder how many of us, can we not seek God for grace to be more bold in our own testimony of Christ? Can we not, if we are shy and if we have been kind of a secret disciple, if you will, it seems as everybody else in the world's coming out of the closet. So, so perhaps we should be a bit bolder in the proclamation of the king that we worship. Maybe we can be, and ask God for grace. This is the Spirit of God enabling him to move forward. He had legitimate fears, but they were overcome because of a greater fear that he had for God. Okay, the the third thing I would put before you is that um, the burial shows us that God uses the devices of the wicked to advance his own ends. Uh, Look with me in 62 with these chief priests and Pharisees. What is in their goad right now? You know, they're going to Pilate and they're wanting him to to put a guard uh, by the tomb. They're concerned that, that his disciples may come and steal him and the hoax of Jesus being the Messiah will just be advanced by a greater hoax and that he's now a risen Messiah. And so they asked for a guard. And you heard the exchange. Pilate says, have a guard. Go take a guard and secure it. And listen to what he said, as best you can. What was he thinking? What was he thinking? I mean, was he a little nervous? As best you can? Do you have a hope? Really? Yeah, go go ahead. Secure it as best you can. I mean, do you notice the irony that's going on here? These, these timid and terrified chief priests and Pharisees, they're going to do everything they can to try to keep Jesus in a box, in a tomb. And what they end up doing is they provide all the evidence of the resurrection. Right? I mean, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the head of Israel, religious leadership, and Rome, Pilate, the representative of Rome there, they're both saying, yep, yep, he's in the hole, he's dead, there's his grave, we guarded it, and we even sealed it. In other words, when you seal a tomb with the Roman insignia, you tamper with the tomb, you're tampering with Rome. And so we've got it sealed. All this evidence becomes proof of the resurrection. They provide the very proof of when they go back and said, listen, 
they're hostile witnesses, and yet they're still advancing. There was an empty tomb. It's incredible. You can't, God's not going to be thwarted in his plans for his son or for you. I mean, I think of Psalm 2. You know, the, the foolishness of humanity sometimes is, is it's always on display. Sometimes it's under lights. He says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's amazing because it says that they gathered together with Pilate. They gathered together with Pilate. He says, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. He laughs. You know, if you're not a Christian, I think that there's something to be gained from watching the Pharisees and the chief priests. Um, they have a hatred for Jesus Christ, no doubt. They, they have hatred. But they're, they're confounded by him. They think that, that if we post a guard, that's somehow going to stop them. Or they're worried about the disciples, although they've proved inept the entire time. They, they haven't even been around for two chapters. They think that by doing these things, as best they can, that they're going to somehow stop. You know, and, and if you remember, we're going to hit this next week probably, but, but when the guards end up reporting to the chief priests all that happened, the earthquake and the angel and the empty tomb, the, guard, the, the chief priests offer to pay them. Hey, just keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. And, and it made me think, you know, disbelief is not evidential. You know, it's not, I don't have enough evidence. Disbelief isn't evidential. It's actually personal. We don't want to believe. We don't want to commit our way to this person. We don't want to submit to God, I would just, if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to consider that for a moment. Why would I not believe? With, with, with all the circumstantial evidence of this, why wouldn't I believe? Is it evidential? Well, well, evidence doesn't seem to convince at least these chief priests and Pharisees, so why don't you believe? To the Christian, though, I, I hope you take just tremendous courage from this. That God is sovereign over the events, not just in the life of Christ, but now those who are in Christ over your lives. He watches over everything. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. He says in Psalm 115, he sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. There's nothing that can thwart the hand of God. Let me read to you just an extended little word from J.C. Ryle, the Anglican pastor in the 19th century. He says it in a way that I wish I could say it. He says this, I forgot to print that one. <laughs> I did that about a month and a half ago, and I said, I won't do that again. Well, you'll just have to wait. I'll send it to you on email. But uh, the, the word is simply, I hesitate to paraphrase it, because when you read it, you'll say, why did he even try? <laughs> The word is that God is sovereign over all events. We may fear global terror. Many of us here may fear uh, financial instability in our country. Uh, we may fear the political turmoil, the chaos, the circus that is occurring. Uh, we may fear cultural issues and the disintegration of culture. And those are true existential fears, no doubt, but they're temporal. 
And, and you need to know the Christian can take comfort in the fact that God is sovereign over the details of this life. Uh, the, the one word that J.C. Rawl had is that he polishes the stones of the people of God. He polishes them with persecutions. And, and, and he uses guards and seals to accomplish his purposes. He used these wicked men to advance his own purpose. I, I would ask you, to believe that. I mean, if you're a Christian, I'm calling you to faith that, that these fears that you may have, I'm not saying they're not existent. I'm just saying that there is a greater God that is governing a universe for His purposes and our good. And this is what I'm calling you to believe. So that when we do encounter trials of various sorts, we can be of good cheer. We can even be thankful we can even consider it joyful, for we know that he will purpose them to make us full and complete in every way. And that's what we see here. That these, do the best you can, but it wasn't good enough because God had another plan. So the wicked can do as best they can, but it's just not as good as what he can do. Okay, the, the, the fourth consideration I'd ask you to think over is that the burial reminds us that we don't need to fear our own burial. We don't need to fear our death. Listen, I don't want to be morbid here, and I don't want to seem insensitive to anyone here. But the reality is that we, each one of us, if Jesus Christ delays, will all die. We're all going to die. I mean, there is no escaping it. There never has been, there will not be. I'm trying to be a realist gently because I know this is a point of fear for many. I think we draw great encouragement from his burial. Jesus was, he did die. He did die and he was in fact buried. In fact, some theologians say this is his last stage of humiliation. When he was on the cross, he said it's finished. And it was. The work of Christ paying for the sins was finished. But his work was not concluded. He had to be in the tomb. In fact, Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch theologian, said Christ would not be a complete savior for us if he had not descended into the grave. Why? Because Jesus Christ will experience every single thing that his brothers and sisters will experience. And he enters the grave to provide us hope because as he entered the grave and he rested in the tomb, as Edgar prayed, he rested in the tomb. And then what? He came out. And, and he came out as the first fruits of all those who have faith in Christ. This is what Paul's driving at in Romans chapter 6, 4. There's benefit for us today. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's why that old hymn of the 19th century, it is not death to die. It's not death. There's no final death. We're being drawn out. That's the hope. That's the beauty of it. In fact, even just... To tangle, put this in your mind. The problem of death occurred in a garden in Genesis 3. Sin occurred, death came with it. Jesus was buried in a garden. And he came out in a garden, showing us that's now finished. It's finished. It's complete. So even though we close our eyes in this life, we'll open them to true life. 
That's the hope that we have. The, the, the last point about the burial that I'd ask you to consider is that his burial shows us in a way how to live until he returns. It, it shows us how to live until he returns. Let me explain what I mean by this. So on Saturday, we're on Saturday now, right? You have these disciples, you have Nicodemus, you have Joseph of Arimathea, you have the women that were there. What were they thinking on Saturday? Can you imagine? Jesus is in a tomb. They seem to be as silent as the tomb is silent. They were facing, I can only imagine, deep, deep despair. Can you imagine Peter? Peter with the guilt that he had to deal with? He denied the Lord, hadn't seen the Lord since then. He had to have incredible guilt that he was dealing with. And Mary, probably deep despair, and John, deep disappointment. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan said this, hopeless, disappointed, bereaved, heartbroken. But the love he had created in those hearts for himself could not be quenched. There's that mixture of love, but disappointment, even in his dying, even by his dying, could not be overcome. Even though they were disappointed, it could not be extinguished. Even though the light of hope had gone out, and over the sea of their sorrow, there was no sighing wind that told them of dawn. So here they are. They're this mixture of tension, aren't they? They loved him, and yet he seemed to be no more. We often live like that. We live like, there's a sermon titled, Saturday's Children. We live like them on Saturday. We have a belief in God, but, but we don't sense that resurrection power. We, maybe you prayed for your marriage over and over and month after month. You've got people to pray for you. And months have turned into years and years have, have multiplied themselves. And, and there's no deliverance. We wonder, where is the resurrection power? Or, or, or you have a, a physical ailment that you've prayed, you've fasted, you've sought doctors, you've, you've gathered people to pray, and, and it stays with you. And Where is that resurrection power? Or perhaps it's with a wayward child, and, and, and you've again marshaled people, you've done everything the Scripture tells you to do, and there's no deliverance. We're not Saturday's children. We're Sunday's children. We, we have to learn to live in this tension of now. Yes, he has been raised and he's seated at the right hand of God, but we're not yet experiencing the fullness of his resurrection. But we're called to live by faith, waiting, as they should have been waiting. These disciples and these women, they should have been hanging at the tomb. We're pitching a tent. We're staying the night. We're not going anywhere. He said on the third day he'd raise again. I got Sunday morning as the third day. Let's wait for him. And they didn't wait. Now, they were joyously surprised on Sunday morning. But we're people of Sunday. And so I would encourage you, we don't want to live as Saturday's children, we want to live as Sunday's children. There is a tension, no doubt, we will suffer in this life. But he said, you will suffer. He said, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That's pretty good. He's already shown us that he's the new creation, beginning as he bursts out of the grave. As the bodies came out of the tombs, it's a picture. We are going to be created anew. That's what we're living for. That's what we're looking toward. 
And, and this, by the way, is to be the encouragement we can give to one another. I, you know, we're going to be speaking in a few weeks about a culture of discipleship. How do we as a church grow in our ability to disciple one another? Not just teach the Bible to one another. That's part of it. But when I speak about a culture of discipleship, I mean the language that we have, the conversations that we have, the way we speak to one another. We're going to be encouraging people. This would be a great text to encourage. We don't want to be like the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember how they, they saw Jesus, they didn't recognize him, and what did they say? We had hope. Oh, yeah, you still have hope. We always have hope. It's not we didn't, we had hope. No, 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 we have hope. And, and this is when our brother or sister are walking through difficult issues of life. We want to remind them we're not Saturday's children, we're Sunday's children. So, so here, it, it's a burial passage. It, it seems dark, but, but you, you can see the shafts of light begin to come. It teaches us about the company he keeps. Please, if you've considered yourself weak, unusable, unhelpful, really extraneous to the kingdom, be challenged. He uses women to do his greatest testimony, witnessing to his crucifixion and his death and his resurrection. And keep in mind that the bearer reminds us that God vindicated the son. He was buried, a kingly burial. Keep in mind that the burial reminds you that the devices of the wicked cannot thwart the plans of God. And that his bearer reminds you that though we will be buried, we're buried with hope that he is the first fruits and we with faith, with faith, will follow. I, I just encourage, if you do not have faith, if you have not come under the banner of Christ's protective love and, and his sacrifice for you, trust Christ. That is how a person is saved. We become a Christian by saying, I need Christ to be my advocate, my representative, my savior, my sacrifice. That is how we move from darkness to light how we go from being far away to be drawn near to being an enmity with God in sin to being a child of God forgiven. And, and then last, remember, the burial teaches us how to live until that day. We live by faith with hope in the new creation that you're going to find just across the page in chapter 28. Let's just, um, well, let me pray for us, and then we'll prepare our hearts for communion. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, eternally preexistent with you, forever in glory, equal to, beautiful in every way, fully divine, would become a man, suffer death on a cross, be buried in a tomb, that we might be saved. Overwhelm us with this. Father, cause us, our affections to grow for Christ, and that as our affections grow for all that he is and all that he's done and all that he will forever do, that our lives would reflect obedience, not out of duty, but, but sheer delight for the one who has died for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.